our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you've come along to engage in a little bit of wrong thing today. In fact, I would encourage you to take off your shoes. We can revel in it because that's what we do. This is all about thinking for yourself. You may not have noticed. I assume you probably noticed something you wouldn't have clicked on here. But uh, hey, if uh, if you are listening to this show, it's uh, it's a good chance you are looking for information that doesn't treat you like some kind of a simple child who has to be spoon-fed pre-digested sound bites and told, here's what you have to believe. Now run along. Go ahead. Take the ball. Play with your ball. Go. Um, no, I think you're a you're a living, breathing, functioning adult. You're more than capable of owning your own worldview. Why I do what I do is because a lot of people have forgotten this along the way. It's been trained out of us, or sometimes peer pressure causes us to just want to blend in with the crowd to avoid any, you know, any kind of confrontation or any kind of criticism. Well, if you're a person who values your freedom, and again, I'm assuming you do or you wouldn't be listening to this program, uh, this, is, uh, this is how we go about it. On this program, I share with you information from the best sources I can find. I'm not going to say everything I share with you is absolute truth, and you're bound to believe it. It's up to you. But I do have some great sources that I go to on a regular basis, and I feel like I have a better understanding of the world, as well as a good sense of what I can do within my own little sphere of influence to make the world a better place. So with that as a starting point, let's jump right in. You probably noticed how prices have jumped significantly lately. I think the funniest meme I've seen in a long time was somebody made the comment about, you know, I don't really want to be rich. I just want to be well off enough that I could go shoot a whole box of 9mm at a piece of plywood. <laughs> it's like <laughs> plywood's up like 400%. I don't even know how much 9mm ammo is. I know it's expensive right now. But why is it that everything is, is so much more costly? You're seeing this at the grocery store. Inflation's at a 12-year high. Well, Peter Jacobson has a very solid explanation. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education's website, fee.org. And it's all about the money. Peter Jacobson says, Yesterday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or BLS, released numbers indicating that the average price level of consumer goods has risen 4.2% since this time last year. Now, that's the highest rate since 2008. In other words, the average consumer making the same salary this year has taken a pay cut when you consider what their paycheck can actually buy. Now, how does the Bureau of Labor Statistics know this? Well, one way the BLS keeps track of inflation is by using the Consumer Price Index, or CPI. The CPI uses some of the common goods urban consumers buy, and they keep track of the prices of these goods each year. So a CPI growth of 4.2% means this basket of goods the average urban consumer buys has become 4.2% more expensive. Economists call this measure inflation. Now, CPI is by no means a perfect measure of inflation, nor could any measure be, but it changes, it provides rather some kind of a benchmark to compare how much prices have actually changed over time. So now the question should be popping into your head, well, what exactly is happening to our money? 
Why is inflation increasing now? And Peter Jacobson says it's all about the money. He says, imagine tomorrow that suddenly all U.S. money becomes a 10 times larger number. $10 bills become $100 bills. Bank accounts with $10,000 turn into accounts with $100,000. The four quarters in your cup holder transform into a $10 bill. Now, this might sound nice at first, but consider what happens next. If prices stay the same, people suddenly rush out to buy new things. Suddenly, a student with a $7,000 student loan can buy a Porsche. Someone can afford a down payment on a house who was months away before. A kid with a generous allowance buys a flat-screen TV. But now the problems appear. All cars for sale are being driven off the lot. TV shelves are empty. House offers pour in only minutes after listing. In other words, there's more money, but the exact same amount of goods exist. And with so many customers demanding new goods, sellers have 10 customers fighting over one product. So what happens? Well, the price is bid up. In fact, prices in this world will make, on average, the same change as bank accounts. $1 candy bars become $10. Average quality TVs cost thousands of dollars. And the $100,000 two-bedroom in Kansas becomes a million-dollar purchase. If more dollars chase the exact same goods, prices will rise. Now, Peter Jacobson says, although the example he's just given here is simplified, the general idea holds in the real world. Unfortunately, not everyone has gotten 10 times more money, but new money has been introduced to the economy. Now, the quantity of money measured as M2 by the Federal Reserve has increased more than 32.9% since January 2021. That means that nearly a quarter of the money in circulation has been created since then. And he has a graph here that shows a change like this is unprecedented, at least in recent history. And by the way, that image is from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Just so you know, this isn't, you know, from some crackpot Alex Jones website. This is, no, this is from the the belly of the beast. He says the newly printed money helps fund the slew of trillion-dollar coronavirus spending, which benefited massive corporations. It's also an attempt to satisfy consumers' demand to hold money so they'll be comfortable spending again. And spending they are. As lockdowns end and finally allow consumers to return to normal economic activity, the new money begins to move through the economy more quickly. Banks have more money to lend out. People are building new homes. As more homes are built, the demand for wood increases. As the demand for wood increases, the price of wood goes up. Sound familiar? Although the new money won't hit all markets at the same time, and it may take some time for demand to return to pre-lockdown levels, the inflation numbers indicate this process has begun. In order for inflation to slow down, either spending would have to slow down or the government would have to lower the money supply. Which leads us to the question, is that bad? Now, he says none of this means hyperinflation is coming tomorrow or ever. In fact, it could be a blip caused by a low CPI benchmark. But given all the new money floating around, he says it shouldn't surprise anyone if this rate of inflation were to persist or increase. He says the Federal Reserve members aren't worried. In fact, they claim not to be considering contra-actionary, let me try that again, contractionary money policy until inflation is this level for some time. In other words, they're not going to restrict access to credit. 
Many economists argue inflation would need to be much higher to be worth worrying about. But inflation need not be hyperinflation to be harmful to many, because inflation's effects are not equal. After a year of lockdowns leading to job losses and pay cuts, many Americans aren't in a position to pay 4.2% higher prices. It's easy for someone with a comfortable job or nest egg to scoff at these price increases, but working class and poor Americans feel the difference. I would say so does everybody who's on a fixed income, like retirees. Peter Jacobson says at a time when Americans work to rebuild their savings to protect their families from future uncertainty, is it wise to ignore a policy that slowly eats away at their savings while they scramble to find new coupons for groceries or consider taking a much longer public transit route to save on gas? These struggles are worth consideration. So, he asks, will inflation rise? Will it fall? And the answer is no one can say for sure. But we can say for sure inflation doesn't need to be in the double digits to hurt. Now, I'll have a link to his article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Peter also has a really great article on why gas prices are currently so high. And isn't it interesting? I mean, look, I, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to plant any thoughts of it. it's a conspiracy in your head. I'm just, you know, I'm pointing out something that's very curious, but when it comes to measuring inflation, I find it very curious that the government agencies that measure it conveniently omit the two things that people really need all the time, food and gas. Well, we don't take those costs into consideration if they're rising. And I have to ask, why not? That's where most people are going to feel it. They feel it at the gas pump. They feel it at the grocery store. Bottom line is, if you have money sitting in the bank, actually, if you have a a mattress stuffed with money, just sitting there holding on to it, you know, because you don't trust the banks and their manipulations and what have you, you're still losing purchasing power with every single dollar you have saved because there are more dollars chasing the same amount of goods and services. Might want to start thinking about ways you could hedge against inflation. And I'm not here to give financial advice. I'm not going to tell you, yes, 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 by all means, gold and silver, that's the only way to go. I do think, though, that we have reached a point where if you don't have it in your hand, it's pretty hard to count it as yours. So I would say tangible goods, commodities... Land, tools, even skills. You got to convert that money into something that doesn't lose value as more and more money is added into the economy. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I do want to mention, I've got a story coming up here. I'll I'll, I'll save this for the next segment, but I have a a heartwarming story. At least I think it's going to lift your heart. It certainly did mine, but you got to wait for it for a moment. We're going to talk about something else here. That um, This is a topic that Eric Peters, who joins me each Tuesday here on the program, uh, fellow wrong thinker Eric Peters has warned about this for some time. You know, we're excited when we see self-driving cars coming around. I actually had a chance to take a ride with a friend who just purchased a Tesla. And uh, b- besides being amazed at the acceleration of that electric car, it's it's very impressive. I mean, it's like I can't get the smile off my face. Impressive. But uh, when, when he pulled onto the freeway, and I mean, we're talking 
you know, Wasatch Front to Salt Lake, Utah, um, heavy traffic. He put it into self-driving mode, and I'll be darned, that car did a better job of navigating, maintaining distance, and, and driving itself than I can. I, I should feel a little bit insulted, but uh, it's truly amazing technology. However, there is a downside, and this is what Eric has warned about, and that is we are being moved slowly and steadily, in spite of these technological advances, toward a dystopian future in which almost no one owns a car. There's a great article on the Mises Institute website, Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S dot org. It's by Zachary Yost. And I think he has a message here that's worth considering. Especially if you're one of those people who, you know, values your autonomy. Zachary Yost says, By this point, readers are more than familiar with previously unthinkable infringements on our traditional rights and liberties due to health and safety lockdowns that the state has inflicted on us over the last year. Well, thankfully, more and more restrictions are being lifted. It's important not to forget the period of veritable universal house arrest that was enacted in many states in which even the freedom to go for a drive was denied to us. It unfortunately seems inevitable that we will face such scenarios again when a convenient excuse comes along, though I fear that the next time will be even worse thanks to the advent of self-driving cars. Zachary Yost says, Self-driving cars seem like a truly amazing advancement in human technology. As someone who's not particularly fond of driving, he says, I once followed their development with great interest and hopeful anticipation. However, the advent of lockdowns as an acceptable government policy has shown just a taste of the kind of dangers that would come with their widespread adoption. So while self-driving cars would liberate us from many of the dangers of the road and free up time in which to work or enjoy ourselves on a ride, the price of this liberation is actually an unprecedented level of government control. He says some advocates of self-driving cars argue that their adoption would mean that very few people would actually own a vehicle anymore and that instead everyone would basically Uber everywhere. Now, oftentimes such predictions are espoused by people who lament how evil American prosperity is and cringe at the thought of our car culture's carbon footprint. <clears throat> so it's not difficult to see how this could go very wrong. Can you imagine how much worse government lockdowns would have been at their height last year if the state merely needed to apply pressure to Uber-like ride services to cease general operation to stop people from moving? Ride services would almost certainly be forced to require government-issued documents in order to book a ride in such a scenario, leaving the vast majority of the population completely stranded and unable to go anywhere. Now, fortunately, there are many reasons to believe that without massive government intervention, America is not likely to willingly let go of its deeply ingrained car culture in favor of ubiquitous Ubering. However, he says, even if people do their own self-driving cars the danger remains. Tesla's a case in point. Zachary Yost says, unlike a traditional car that drives off the lot and disappears into traffic, Tesla cars are perpetually connected to the Internet and Tesla itself. As the pioneer in self-driving cars, it seems likely that other manufacturers will also build around Tesla's concept, which is itself similar to numerous other smart appliance trends in everything from house lighting to fridges, ovens, and washing machines. And while this connectivity has great uses, such as allowing repairs to be completed remotely, the danger is obvious. 
Customers have complained about having features of their Tesla being removed without their notice or authorization, prompting one reporter to remark, if someone buys a used car with cruise control, there isn't an expectation that the manufacturer will then arrive and ask to remove it. Yet something similar has already happened. Similarly, Tesla collects vast amounts of data from its cars, which is no doubt useful and needed for continuing to improve the system and work out kinks. But it's dangerously naive to believe that such data would remain outside the reach of government if it wanted it. Finally, he says the same danger with universal Ubering still remains. Tesla or any other self-driving car that would naturally require some level of Internet connection can be remotely shut down. So as cool as Tesla may seem, the odds are very slim that it would defy a state order to render its fleet inoperable in the name of public safety or any other excuse the government may come up with. He says, think, of, think back to the hysteria of last spring. You are kidding yourself if you believe that people like Governor Whitmer of Michigan wouldn't have ordered all cars rendered inoperable until essential workers were granted permission to drive if such a thing had been within her power. And the picture becomes even more bleak if one thinks of the nefarious uses such control could be used for beyond public health lockdowns. What if our current cancel culture craziness were to continue into a death spiral that resulted in something akin to the Chinese social credit system? Now, such a thing seems unthinkable. Come on, this is America after all. But if in 2019 we'd been visited by a time traveler who told us that in a year, Americans would be forbidden from leaving their homes or going to church and that businesses would be forced to close en masse, we likely would have thought such a person was crazy. Yet here we are. So Zachary Yost says, it's easy to see all the benefits that would come with self-driving cars, but at the end of the day, the potential for dramatically increased government control and abuse is horrifying to contemplate. Now, you shouldn't be feeling fear. You know, you shouldn't be feeling anger. Um, but you should definitely be thinking, hmm, we should probably think this through very carefully before proceeding further. I love the idea of a self-driving car. I can't tell you how. I, I really don't enjoy driving, and especially I don't enjoy driving in really heavy urban traffic. It's among my least favorite things to do. It's, it's the only time in my life I can think of where when I get ready to go drive, I <sighs> heave a sigh, steal myself, and all right, let's do this. feel like I'm buckling on my combat helmet and, you know, cover me. I'm going in as I head out the driveway. I would love the ability to be able to work on work projects or just read a book or maybe, I don't know, take a nap, whatever, as the car safely and surely drives itself to whatever the destination may be. That has some appeal. Probably it's just because I'm lazy. I don't know. But I, I like the idea of, wow, it would be great to see the car able to do this. But I think Zachary Yost has a very valid point here. What would prevent government officials, under the guise of helping us, of course, from stepping in and assuming control for our own protection. You know, that right to move about, the right to travel, is something that a lot of us have taken for granted for a long time. And it's something that's, that's pretty easy to, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to justify away. I can't tell you how many people have, have, I've heard say, well, you know, driving on the public roads is a privilege. It's not a right. And they obviously don't know anything about uh, the Supreme Court's findings on uh, whether or not you and I have a natural right to travel. Now, to them, that may mean, well, only by horseback or by foot. 
but that's not the case. So the, the advice here is simply look before you leap, be aware, and just know this, there will always be power seekers and opportunists who are looking for another angle, another way to increase their control over the populace in general. Let's not willingly walk into a situation where we're handing them the control that they are lusting for so clearly. Even if it's really convenient for us and seems to make sense at the time. All right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to warm your heart with a story that uh, involves actually a friend's son. Stick around. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, by the way, visit my website, if you would please, thebrianheidshow.com. It's a pretty simple affair, okay? There's not a lot of bells and whistles. What you will find, though, are a couple of things that I hope will be of use to you. Number one, you will find my show notes. So you can just look at the show notes. Uh, I have links to all the articles and different things I discuss, and you can check that out, read up, and find out more for yourself. You'll also find a little uh, collection of resources for wrong thinkers. And these are some of my favorite uh, websites. I'm still adding to this as we grow, so it's a list that's growing. But uh, these are some of the places where I stop by on a daily basis or where I've subscribed to their daily emails just to get articles about things of interest that uh, help me have a better understanding of the world. I have picked these sites because they tend to be more focused on principles and less focused on partisan concerns. I mean, in a perfect world, you know, you'd be able to perfectly avoid a lot of the political uh, melodrama that's going on. We're not in a perfect world. But these come pretty close. And there are some journalists that I think still uh, deserve the title of journalist, and there's a lot that don't. But if you'll check out the website, you'll also find we have some great sponsors, including people like HSLAmmo.com, Pure-Light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Those are three of the sponsors for The Brian Hyde Show, and I would encourage you, go do some business with them, or at least tell them, hey, I heard about your business here. All right, I'm ready to share something with you that absolutely lifted my heart when I saw this story last week. A friend shared this on Facebook, and I started the. I, I started watching it. This is from KSL. I started watching the, the news story, the video for it, and immediately recognized, hey, yeah, there's water polo, and this was only important because my oldest boy was uh, was a water polo player in high school, really enjoyed it, and as I'm looking around, I'm like, hey, these guys look familiar, and I realized that I was looking at a story about uh, about my friend's son up in the Logan Hiram area of Utah, and when I say this is my friend's son, I, I need some background here because this... this illustrates just just how far back this goes. Um, my friend, his name is Brooks, he and I have been buddies since we were about four or five years old. I know for sure we went to kindergarten together. I remember walking to school with him. Um, we have stayed good friends. I moved away from Salt Lake when I was 11 years old. Um, I'll admit, I cried when I, when I said goodbye to Brooks because that was he he has just been one of the truest friends that I've ever had in my life and and I want you to understand he still is that true friend we 
we have only seen each other a handful of times in the many years since uh, since we parted company back in 1977. He is still one of my dearest friends, and it always feels like when we get together, we haven't missed a thing. We just pick up right where we left off. Um, maybe you can identify with that. I don't know. Maybe some people can't. But I, I'm I'm noticing this is a story about his son, Benjamin. Now, Benjamin is a goalie. He's in his senior year of high school, and uh, water polo is a pretty interesting sport. It's it uh, it's rough. You got to be tough. You got to be strong. You got to be a good swimmer, and and you you have to have arms like an orangutan to be effective, right? Because you got to pluck the ball out of the water. You got to get it over the the other team's heads and and get it in a position where you, one of your team members can get it into the opponent's goal. So here you have Benjamin Lennox, six foot three. His wingspan is roughly six foot three. He is just remarkable. And I mean, they, they show in this video footage, this kid does not miss blocking all those shots at the goal. He tends the goal, and no matter how they try to do it, he has this uncanny ability to block it. I mean, he is really just a phenom when it comes to water polo. And then... The story takes a little bit of a twist. As you see Benjamin out of the pool and walking along the poolside with a white cane tapping along in front of him. And what's going on here is Benjamin, um, I knew this because of conversations with my friend, um, they knew Benjamin had some sight difficulties and they thought maybe it was the, the rods or cones in his eyes were just making it really hard for him to see things at night. You know, as a, as a Boy Scout, you know, other kids would be running around, you know, playing hide-and-seek in the dark, and Benjamin would be running into stuff. And they, they thought, well, maybe he's just got this weird disorder where, you know, the rods and cones aren't working. Well, no, it's it's something much more serious. This young man has been diagnosed with uh, retinitis pigmentosa. And that is a degenerative eye disease that causes the cells in the eye to die. And the initial effect is tunnel vision. The long-term effect is that the tunnel gradually closes in. And Benjamin has lost, I think, all but about 27% of his vision. So if you can imagine going through life as if you're looking through a telescope or maybe a paper towel tube, you know, and that's, that's all you can see. That is what Benjamin has to deal with. Whereas uh, normally, you know, people like you and I would have up to 180 degrees of visual field. So tunnel vision while you're walking the street, tunnel vision while climbing the stairs, tunnel vision while playing water polo. It's crazy. I mean, it's and here's the funny thing. That ball is coming towards the goalie at 40 miles an hour. How on earth does he stop something that he all too often can't even see? And this is how Benjamin explains it. He says, when they bring the ball up, there's a very distinct noise because the ball has a very sandy feel to it. It just rubs against your hand. You can just hear it. I can hear it slide off their hand, and I can hear the momentum they're getting into the ball. And so my friend Brooks asked his son, how are you blocking those shots? I know some of them you can't see. And Benjamin told him, sometimes I just listen to where the ball is. And his coach said, yeah, he describes it like he can hear the ball leave the player's hand and he's able to just kind of track it. It's almost like echolocation. Now, his, uh, Benjamin's two older brothers, Brian and Jared, uh, they, they were both uh, very, very celebrated goalies 
in water polo as well, champion goalies. And they said, you know, I don't know how he does it, but without a doubt, I would say he's one of the best. So I'm, I'm just going to, I have a link to the story. You really need to watch the story. You need to see this amazing family for yourself. And, uh, and more than anything, I, I want you to pay close attention to Benjamin's attitude here. He is not wallowing in victimhood, even though he is, is staring down, um, becoming completely blind. But he's very positive. He, he sees a bright future. He, he is, he's not taking a moment here to sit around and just kind of stew in, in feeling bad for himself. He runs track. He runs cross country. Works around the house. I mean, he is just, he's a cheerful guy. Um, that's all I'm going to say. Watch the story. I think it will absolutely lift your heart. It did mine. And, um, you know, I thought I knew my friend and I thought I knew his family, but I'm appreciating them on a whole different level after watching this. And I'm just, I'm really thrilled to be able to share that with you. The link is in the show notes. Show notes for May 14th, 2021 at thebrianheidshow.com. All right, I'm going to shift gears now. I just want to take a little uh, little side journey now. You know that politicians have been more than generous in handing out other people's money, or, as the case may be, uh, borrowing it with the promise that others will repay what's been borrowed. But who really benefits from all that stimulus spending? John Stossel says it's the corporations that are getting rich off government aid. He says Congress passed the $2.2 trillion HEROES Act. House Democrats said it gives money to governments who desperately need funds. But he says it also gives a lot of money to people who don't need funds. Maryland, which even the Washington Post admits is flush with cash, got enough extra money to pass a budget that hands bonuses to every state worker. Even Atherton, California, where the median home price is $6 million, got HEROES Act money. Lisa Conyers, the author of Welfare for the Rich, says there was no means test. Omni Hotels and Resorts received $68 million in loans. Major airlines got $25 billion in loans from the CARES Act. And Conyers says, who wouldn't like to play Santa Claus? Who wouldn't like to be able to give, just just to give everyone some money? Well, Welfare for the Rich didn't start with coronavirus relief bills. Stossel says politicians have done it for years and a pandemic didn't stop them. Nevada politicians gave Oakland Raiders owner Mark Davis $750 million for a new stadium. A stadium designer says Davis insisted on the very best, including natural natural grass on a field that moves in and out of the building in one piece. To which John Stossel says, cool, but why didn't Davis pay for it himself? Well, I'm not a billionaire, he said, but he is. The team is valued at more than $3 billion. Davis and his mom co-own 47% of it. Bottom line is, politicians screw taxpayers to build stadiums for lots of rich people. we got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll flesh that out, and you can see for yourself what John Stossel is talking about here. Who's being helped with all that government spending, all that aid, all those dollars being rushed out there to save the day? Well, if you're a corporation, you could raise your hand and say, yes, it's me. If you're an average citizen, not so fast. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from John Stossel. I picked this one up off everything-voluntary.com. Corporations are getting rich off government aid. And I knew this. I knew there was this interesting partnership between you know, sports team owners and and uh, you know, I, I understood that politicians are very willing to screw taxpayers to build stadiums for lots of rich people. I don't think I realized just how cozy that relationship was. Stossel says Minnesota gave the Minnesota Vikings three hundred forty-eight million dollars for their new stadium. Santa Clara, California gave the San Francisco 49ers $114 million plus $850 million in loans. Team co-owner Denise York and her family are worth $3.5 billion, says Forbes. And Stossel says she ought to fund her own stadium. In fact, he said to, to Ms. Conyers in his interview with her, the taxpayers often vote for this stuff, so they must like it. Her reply was, well, they're promised there are going to be all these jobs, not only at the stadium, but at the hotels that are going to rise up around the stadium. Politicians always promise that public investment will return more in benefits to taxpayers. But it's not true. A study by the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City found new stadiums bring in about $40 million in jobs and tax benefits, much less than the $188 million that taxpayers pay. And handouts to other corporations are no better. Ohio politicians gave GM millions in tax credits to help keep its Lordstown plant open. GM then closed the plant. And politicians still let GM keep a third of the money. Wisconsin gave nearly $3 billion in tax breaks to Foxconn because it promised to create 13,000 jobs. Now the company promises to create only 1,454, rather. So if you look at the cost of each job... That was nearly a million dollars. Actually, Stossel says it was more than a million. Politicians often justify this corporate welfare by saying, well, we didn't just give cash, just tax breaks. But if some big company is in that town and they're not paying property tax, that means every other taxpayer is covering for them. Conyers points out fire departments still have to be paid for, police departments have to be paid for, schools have to be paid for, and then there's the farm subsidy scam. Both Republicans and Democrats eagerly give your money to agribusiness, even though farmers are now richer than the average American. Politicians claim the handouts are not a payoff for political contributions, but to make sure there's enough food to go around, and since farmers have no control over price fluctuations in the weather. But John Stossel says that's absurd. Other businesses have to adjust to price fluctuations in weather. America doesn't subsidize fruit and vegetable farmers, yet we have plenty of fruits and vegetables. He says the politicians claim they want to help small family farms, but they give 90% of the subsidies to the biggest farms. Such welfare for the rich persists because years ago, politicians voted for a handout, and once they start giving your money away, they never stop. Conyers says, I'm an American taxpayer. I don't understand why money is leaving my pocket and going into the pocket of someone who is wealthy. To which John Stossel responds, yeah, me either. I got a link to the article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. One final note here, and I only mentioned this in passing. Um, you, maybe you saw yesterday the CDC is now announcing, hey, uh, if you are fully vaccinated, you no longer have to mask up. You know, inside. I didn't think you had to mask up outside. And it was funny to see that uh, the president actually wanted to get in on the action 
Is it kind of like uh, finding a parade and jumping in front of it? Hey, look, everybody, I'm leading the parade. But, you know, the idea was, well, you have a choice. You can either mask up or you can get vaccinated. It's your choice. And what Sleepy Joe doesn't seem to realize is most of us made that choice a long time ago. So, you know, we didn't we weren't waiting for a cue from the CDC or from the office of the president or anybody else as to uh, when it's okay to hug, when it's okay to mask up, when it's okay to go places. We just did it. And I don't know whether to to feel contempt or pity for the politicians who feel like, well, I've got to make it look like I had something to do with this. Something you might find interesting is that uh, MIT researchers are now admitting anti-maskers are being more so more scientifically rigorous rather than their opponents. Annie Holmquist has a great piece on intellectualtakeout.org. She says upon recounting my bout with COVID to an acquaintance, I was asked if I knew where I might have picked up the virus. When I mentioned my hunch about the source, my acquaintance gasped, then inferred that I and those I caught it from must not have been wearing masks since the virus had spread. Annie responded, no, we were wearing masks. Now, such a comment demonstrates the great confidence that many have placed in such measures as lockdowns and mask mandates in recent months. Science confirms that these measures work, many exclaim, arguing that those who question masks or other allegedly helpful restrictions are, quote, (laughs) anti-science. Yet new research from several MIT academics casts some doubt on the anti-science nature of COVID skeptics. In their paper, Viral Visualizations, How Coronavirus Skeptics Use Orthodox Data Practices to Promote Unorthodox Science Online, the academics show some curious cognitive dissonance, making anti-mask opponents out to be clever propagandists who create easily understandable charts and graphs to sway the public away from the authoritative opinions of experts. Yet at the very same time, the academics admit, almost in a puzzled fashion, that these anti-maskers do their investigations in a very scientific manner. Indeed, the paper claims, anti-maskers often reveal themselves to be more sophisticated in their understanding of how scientific knowledge is socially constructed than their ideological adversaries, who espouse naive realism about the objective truth of public health data. Annie Holmquist says the MIT academics go on to admit that those opposed to the masks are not afraid to get down and dirty in looking at statistics, nor are they afraid to increasingly question the media and government authorities, a trait MIT researchers call a weaponization of critical thinking. (laughs) Interesting. Even more surprising is the revelation that anti-maskers' approach to the pandemic is grounded in a more scientific rigor, not less. So Annie says, people can bicker all day long about which side is right on this issue, but in this instance, these straightforward, honest comments from the MIT researchers should give us pause. They're clearly opposed to the idea of the anti-maskers, yet they can't help but begrudgingly respect the scientific methods of their opponents. So how do we cut through the obvious politics of this issue and discern between science and propaganda? American philosopher James Burnham offered some insight into this question in his 1941 book, The Managerial Revolution. Here's what he said, quote, The aim of propaganda is to persuade people to accept certain ideas or feelings or attitudes. The aim of science is to discover the truth about the world. Their propagandistic aim is usually best served by being thoroughly one-sided, by presenting only what is favorable to your case, and suppressing all that might weaken it and bolster your opponent. End quote. 
Annie Holmquist says one could say that both the anti-maskers and the MIT researchers are engaging in propaganda, anxious to present only evidence favorable to their side. But in another sense, one could argue that they are only parroting the narrative promoted by the mainstream media and our politicians, while anti-maskers are actually approaching the data critically. Burnham expands on this thought by noting, in the case of any hypothesis which is under consideration, science, in contrast to propaganda, is always anxious to present all the evidence for and against. The scientific aim is just as well served by proving a hypothesis false as by proving it true. And so Annie Holmquist says, given these facts, why is it that nearly every media source, politician, even the average Joe, is so eager to squelch unorthodox opinions like those explored in this MIT paper. If they refuse to allow their hypotheses to be tested, then they are the ones who are truly anti-science. Again, I'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I don't know, I feel a little bit vindicated here, not that I'm a scientific researcher and I understand all the nuance of this. Um, I don't. But I do see a lot of inconsistencies, and I see a lot of dogma and dogmatic thinking driving some of the pro-mask people. I'm not going to ridicule you, and I'm not going to try to stop you from wearing a mask. I'm not even going to sit there and shake my head at you like, oh, man, you poor person. But I expect the same respect in return. And it's very clear to me right now that uh, there are a lot of folks who have been trained into counting on that mask as kind of a security blanket. I attended an event at my son's school the other day. It was an awards assembly. Lots of people there. One of the biggest crowds I've been in in the last year. And the vast majority of people, probably 95% or more, all thoroughly masked up. I'm guessing a good portion of them have already had the vaccine. And it's uncomfortable to be one of those odd people standing out without a mask. But like I've maintained for about the last year or so, I feel like there's something more at stake here. And so I'm willing to be a little bit of a punching bag if necessary in order to uh, demonstrate that there's more at stake here than simply, you know, I'm just trying to keep you safe. Thanks again for joining us. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.